Welcome to the Sale Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salestreet.org. Getting saved. And man, Christ was uniting his people in him. They had these rights, and then Paul, he circled around and came back by in Acts 21, and he, uh, he called the elders from the church at Ephesus together, and he, he had a conversation with them, and it, he knew. He's like, man, I'm going to prison. Take care of the flock, right? Shepherd the flock. Fierce wolves are going to come in, and you're going to need to lead your people according to the Word of God and by the grace of God, and... Then he was. He was arrested, went on his way, and then while in prison, he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, and it was uh, believed that that letter was also to be brought to some other churches from there. But he writes it specifically to Ephesus for sure to address a few of the things that were going on. And that's what we've seen in the book of Ephesians so far. Now, If you've ever taken a class or read a book or been to school to learn how to study, there's a, they they teach you typically about different genres in the Bible. So in the Bible are 66 books. Some of them are narrative. They're just a story about what has happened. Uh, Some of it is wisdom literature. Some is prophecy. Some are epistles which are letters written, which is what we have here. And so what we have in verses 2 through 13, we're going to read 1 through 13, is really a kind of a unique thing I just want to share a little bit about. So when we read these verses, Paul is picking up where he left off from last week at the end of Ephesians 2, where he says that, Christ in whom the whole structure, talking about the church being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's where we we ended last week was the end of chapter 2. So Paul is reminding the church, you are the dwelling place of God collectively, corporately. God, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Therefore, Right? For this reason, verse number one, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's, he's starting into this prayer. Because we are the dwelling place of the Spirit. But then it's like he puts up these parentheses. If you could imagine when Paul wrote his letter, they probably didn't have any whiteout or like a backspace key or anything. So he's like, oh, I've got to say one more thing before I write this prayer out. And the prayer will be next week's message, and this is probably my favorite prayer in the whole Bible. I'm pretty excited about it. But what we're going to look at today is, is like this short little pause before Paul prays. It's a unique place. There's, no, there's not another one like it in Scripture, but it's just a little pause, and so he pours a little more doctrine into them. So let's pick up in verse number 2 of chapter 3. Here's what it says. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would unite us in Christ Jesus and that through your word, our hearts might become more like Jesus than we've ever been. I pray it all in his name. Amen. So, uh, a little more thing we saw in chapter 2. Paul is reminding the Jews, I mean the, uh, the church at Ephesus, that Jews and Gentiles are now the same in Christ Jesus. And this was, this was big news. Like this, this was a supernatural thing. This wasn't common. It wasn't something that... They were capable of doing on their own that dividing wall of hostility was torn down as we saw just a few verses ago. And so that's good news. But sometimes what happens is, is when God uh, unites people over time, there can, this disunity can kind of creep in, right? And so he's reminded, remember, from, remember what the Lord has done, right? I've come to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They've been brought together and so we see this beautiful picture of unity that Paul just keeps reminding the, the church over and over and over and one word that you'll see kind of woven throughout this past this passage is the word mystery the mystery now if you kind of do a little etymology on that word and, and break it apart and fill it, figure out what it from the, the root word there literally means a closed mouth. This mystery has been, is something that people have been silent on for years, right? It even talks about those people from a previous generation, right? This is, this is good news, but it's kind of still new news for them. That Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. But in this passage, in verse 6, Paul kind of defines the mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles and fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. Jews and Gentiles, one in Christ Jesus. All believers, all of God's people unified, united in Christ. And so that's the mystery. When we get to chapter 5, we'll see that word come up again where he talks about marriages. Right? He said, this, this mystery is profound. It's a picture of Christ and the church. And so, 
Paul is reminding the church that God is revealing His will to His people. That mystery is becoming clear. And that's the way God works. That's what He wants it, His will to be for us. Over time, as we study and hear from Him and grow closer to Him, that picture becomes clearer and clearer. The mystery is known. I think it was Andrew in our preaching meeting mentioned that, you know, the old, the old uh, TV show, right? Uh, back whenever we just had an antenna on the roof, we had to kind of get up there and turn it to where we could catch one or two channels, right? Unsolved Mysteries, I think it was Wednesday night it used to come on, and you know, you, you get these clues and you try to figure out and try to locate the bad guys. Well, this is a little different, but this mystery is being revealed. And so Paul starts in verse number two. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the first thing that we see, and, and if I had to put a title on this, uh, on this message, it would probably be uh, revealing the mystery of God's grace. That's, that's really what Paul is doing here. He's revealing the mystery of God's grace to the church at Ephesus and, a, and beyond, which includes us. And so God's grace is everything in understanding the mystery that has been revealed to Christ. And so in that, Paul considers himself a steward of God's grace. And I think we too should consider ourselves stewards of God's grace. Now that word steward or stewardship, uh, if, you, if you look at the, the original uh, Greek language, which I'm not an expert, I just have some tools that work pretty well. Uh, the, the Greek word is oikonomia, which is where we get our word, our English word, economy from. Think about that. Economy. A lot of talk right now about the economy. I mean, every channel you turn to, every newspaper you open, it's, I don't know if people in here open the newspaper much, but every, every news outlet is talking a lot about the economy and how inflation is high and interest rates are high and the, the dollar value is, seems low, but against other countries, it's, it's increasing somehow. And, and then, you know, if you take out a dollar bill, it's a finite value, right? They're based upon whatever economy it's a part of. Something has to back it, right? It used to be gold. Now it's like securities and different things like that for, for the U.S. Um, if, you, if you ever fool with like any cryptocurrency, something's got to back whatever that currency is. I can remember being in Africa one time, somebody gave me a $50,000 bill that was a Zimbabwe currency. You know what it was worth? Zero. <laughs> right? You know why? Because whatever was backing that fell to pieces. But in God's economy, the economy which Paul was referencing here as he was a steward is the economy of God's grace. And, and that's an economy that will never fail. That's a, an economy that is backed by something far 
greater than anything we have here on earth. It's those unsearchable riches that he, that he talks about preaching in verse number 8. The, the, the currency, if you will, that, that Paul is referencing here is God's grace. It was given to him for you, he says. It was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. You see, God had revealed things, and, and that's the way he did it, right? He revealed things through the apostles and the prophets in a supernatural way that brought about this great change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Jews being God's only chosen people to now Gentiles have access to God's grace through the work and the person of Christ Jesus, and it just brings us together. And he's a steward of that, and you're a steward of that, and we are a steward of that. Stewards of grace so that the mystery might be made known. A steward is someone who something has been entrusted to. Maybe the steward of an estate or an account or a budget. It's economical terms, but this is the kingdom that Paul is speaking of. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. He's speaking back to the Old Testament. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so understanding that we have received the grace of God in such a way that we are stewards of it. Has great unifying power for the church. For us. The church at Cell Street, because we are recipients of God's grace in a supernatural way, we are all brought together in that. We all have the same background. We stood in need of grace and we received it through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have an expectation to do something with that grace, right? It changes us, who we are, what we're responsible for, what matters to us. In verse 6, we see that not only are we stewards, but we are partakers of grace. We are fellow heirs, members of the same body. Here's what he says. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we have that in common. Fellow heirs partakers of grace, members of the same body, the church. We've talked a pretty good bit lately about church membership. A week or two ago, we voted some new members in. We've had a lot of people come and say, I want to be a member of Cell Street Baptist Church. We have that in common. We, we agree under the same covenant that we are recipients of grace. We're stewards of grace. And we're united in that. Back in Acts 21, or Acts 20, whenever uh, Paul went back to speak with the elders there at Ephesus, in verse 32 he said, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Right? This is a work of God and of His word. 
It, it is a bit mysterious, especially looking back to those previous generations, but now Gentiles are fellow heirs. Think about the hostility, the segregation that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Think about even the way the Lord set up those temple courts, right? The Gentiles, they had their own place and it was on the outside. They couldn't intermarry. It was a, definitely a lot of segregation. There was the Gentiles were certainly inferior to the Jews in many, many, many ways. But in Christ, by the grace of God, the mercy of God was extended even to the Gentiles. And now we are all one in Christ. Some of you may be Jewish in here. I'm not. I tell you what, man, this, this is grounds for shouting. This, this right here is huge. This, this is beautiful. It's glorious for us. We are recipients of God's grace. We, we, we're not born of the right family. We have heard this mystery. Christ, the unsearchable riches that were revealed even to Paul to begin to preach to the Gentiles. We're fellow members. We are partakers. And this brings us together. It's not our preferences. It is the grace of God. Verse number 7, it goes on, it says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of His power. So not only are we stewards of grace, not only are we partakers of grace, we are ministers of grace. The word there is diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon. The, the, the same, this is the same word that's used or, or is translated deacons in the Bible, right? The literal meaning is a servant. Wait, Paul was an apostle, not a deacon. No, he was a servant too. That, that word minister or, or ministry is not just a word for those people who have some special title or position. No, it's the result of receiving God's grace. You become ministers. Right? It's what it does to our hearts. It changes us. We become servants. Paul wasn't just an apostle. He wasn't just a preacher. He was a servant. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was a servant. He said, I came to serve and not to be served. Sisters of grace. And if, if we are to be the most united people on earth as a church, guess what? We are all going to be servants. That's God's design. There's, there's nothing more uniting in a tangible way than I could think of than serving together. Matter of fact, when I counsel couples, uh, both before they get married and then sometimes after they get married and start having a little trouble 
It's probably the, the number one piece of advice that I give husbands and wives. How are you serving together? Because guess what happens when we serve together? Whether we're husbands or wife or fellow members of Sale Street. When we serve together, we have a common mission. My wife and I, whenever we go and deliver food during the week, we, we don't have anything to fuss and fight about. Man, we got, we got boxes to move, right? I think about Tim and Justin and, and Drew, they were talking about, man, they got, some, they got a lot of bags. They got one school's 175 bags of food. Well, Justin's our worship guy. What in the world is he doing passing out food? Drew's our teaching pastor. He's supposed to be doing all the teaching. What? Why is he out there serving grace in these schools? What about Tim, man? He's an elder. Why would he be doing that? Man, I'm telling you, serving is worship. Serving is teaching. Justin sent me a video of some little kids, man. They were helping unload those bags this week. That's teaching. That's worship. We want to be a united people. If all we do is serve together, we'll be more united than any group in town, I promise you. And there's work to do. We're stewards of God's grace. We're not reservoirs of God's grace. We're not here to take it all in. Stewards. Fellow heirs. Paul was an apostle. The most supernatural humans who ever existed other than Jesus Christ. And he was a servant. Man, he would take up offerings from one church and bring it to the next. I mean, he's in prison writing letters to them. Ministers of grace. Peter understood this too. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Not only are we stewards and partakers and ministers of grace, but we're also, and Paul was as well, preachers of grace. Verses 8 and, verses eight and 9 say, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. As this mystery of grace is revealed to Paul and to Ephesus, the church there, and to us as well, Paul reminds us what we preach, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Not what we have done, or not what we have, not what we have or what we don't have, or what we haven't done, but the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word unsearchable literally means like you can't get to the end of it. It's infinite. Boundless. That has no bottom. The unsearchable riches of Christ. It's beyond our, really our comprehension and our understanding. And Paul is saying... The church at Ephesus wasn't established upon its ideal location or its gifted leaders. 
But it was established by the glorious gospel that Paul preached and took root in the hearts of a few people that, and changed everything. And so it is with us. And folks, there are many people right here in Lake Charles, Louisiana, to whom the mystery of God's grace has yet to be revealed. And if we want it to be revealed to them, guess what we're going to have to preach? The unsearchable riches of Christ. And guess what? If we'll commit to doing that as a church, we'll be more unified than ever. That's something we can all agree on. Preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Romans 10, 13 tells us, How shall they believe in Him of who they have not heard? Once again, we are not just this reservoir taking in as much of God's grace and God's Word as we can. No, it changes us. It unites us. It overflows. You know, in the same way that those who were called to, to be apostles and preachers, or, it wasn't beneath them to serve, right? There was a call to serve as well. There's actually, that's, that's evidence of receiving God's grace. But on the same hand, those who are called to serve, you know, there are many people who say, I'm just a servant, right? I'm just going to be behind the scene. Nobody ever see what I'm doing. I'm just going to serve Jesus. But even those have great opportunities to open their mouths and to proclaim those unsearchable riches of Christ. Probably the most enlightening verse of this passage for me this week especially has been verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The world does that mean? So that, so this is kind of a purpose statement here. Why, why, why all this revelation of the mystery of God's grace and being stewards and partakers and preachers? Like, why is all that? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, rulers and authorities in heavenly places is that's a supernatural set of beings. That's that's angels, right? That's that's something that we don't really know a whole lot about or talk a whole lot about, right? But that's something that's in another realm. That's in the heavenly realm. And most commentators would agree that it's both fallen angels and holy angels who endlessly forever proclaim the holiness of God to him. And so all of this work of grace and how it unites us in the church is so that they can see it? That seems so wild. Let's, let's just break that down a little bit. So that through the church, that is the called out ones, right? The saints of God, the people of God. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So I brought a tool to show you guys this morning. Just for reference, not everybody knows what a manifold is, and there's multiple kinds, but 
This is a manifold. So maybe you have one in your house. This is for plumbing, right? So you have a source that comes in and you have multiple outlets. And these are designed to where you can even connect more on the other end. And so this is a manifold so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So you think about that. You have a source. You have multiple outlets. This, my friends, is a picture of the church. Our source is the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is from those, those heavenly places. It's endless grace and boundless love. And there's multiple outlets, and that's you and I. Now, what this illustration does not show us well is, is that all of these kind of look the same and are the same size and really would have the same things coming out of them. But when you think about the church and the manifold wisdom of God that's being revealed to the heavenly places... What that word that we have in the scripture there is more than just one source, multiple outlets. Those multiple outlets, it literally says they're multicolored. They're, they're different sizes. They're multifarious, if you will. Like there's, there's a lot of little intricacies to them. But, but that's not the most powerful part of that verse. When you think about the heavenly places and what that looks like, we have some scripture that tells us. What does heaven look like? Burning pure perfection, right? That's God. His glory, His radiant glory shining. Streets of gold reflecting that glory. Floor like glass reflecting His glory. Walls of jasper, beryl, onyx topaz guess what all that does it reflects god's glory so the angels are fully aware of all of this now think about this angels in heaven worshiping god endlessly his glory reflecting off all of these things in the heavenly places then there's the church and the wisdom of god is being shown through the church to those same angels in the heavenly places. That's an entirely different perspective of what's going on in the church. That's huge. I, I did the math. You know how much time we spend on stage here a week? 2.2% of our time. They see it all. All. Every one of us. Every outlet. Doing multiple things. Multiple ways. We see the grace of God being distributed. In all of these ways. And it's a display to those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I was thinking about you know, we got some cool cameras and stuff here now, and uh, it gives us a little bit of perspective of what's going on here. And we, 
We've been talking about this right here. I'll call it the Dead Sea right here, right? There's, no, there's hardly any life right here. And, and those cameras see that. And man, we're like, people watching, they probably think we're a lifeless church. You've got this hole right here every single, every single week. And it, it's, you know, we think about what's going on, what are people seeing. Man, that's, I mean, that is minuscule. So minuscule compared to what the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places have on display for them through the church. Guys, that, that's far greater purpose than we could ever come up with, right? That's far different than anything we could put on our website or social media or anything. God is putting on His display for His glory a unified people who have received His grace and who are distributing that manifold wisdom in who they are and what they do. Lastly, verses 11, 12, and 13, we see this picture of the throne. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. What is the purpose of this mysterious work of grace in God's people, the church? It's His eternal glory. It's all about Him. He is the creator of all things. He sits on the throne of the universe, yet He draws us to His Son. And domicile just yet. But guess what? They're not off limits. Look at what it says. Through Christ Jesus we have access with confidence through our faith in Him. When Christ drew his last breath, even the Jews couldn't go into the presence of the ark except for one guy one day a year. And when Jesus drew his last breath, it says that the, that curtain that separated God from mankind was torn. And through Christ, we have access to him. Boldness. That word literally means frankness or bluntness. You might say, well, I thought we were all about grace. Where did all this bluntness come in at, right? No, gracious. We, we become a graciously frank people in Christ Jesus. I'd say Paul was a pretty good example, right? There's no question whether or not Paul loved the people, but he was frank with them. He was very forthright with them, right? He, he, he didn't trick them into believing in Jesus. No. No, he preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. Boldly. Why? Because of the access that he was given to the throne. We too have access, right? What a glorious privilege it is as recipients of God's grace to have direct access to him. We don't have to go through a priest. 
We're not separated by courts and curtains. We have access to Him. In verse 13, Paul says, basically, don't get discouraged, right? I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, it, it, was, it was really a, an offense of bringing uh, this kind of Ephesian. What was, Paul was accused of was taking this uh, Ephesian counterfeit, if you will, into the temple. That's why he went to prison. And Paul's saying, you may feel like I'm suffering over something that you were partly responsible for. But don't lose heart. This is for the Lord's glory. One commentator, Paul Bain, said about this verse, he says, We must not be ashamed of our sufferings for Christ, but rather rejoice in them. Soldiers will tell of the wounds, the shot, and all hard measure they have suffered from the hand of the enemy under their colors. So must we esteem it our chief honor when God allows us to suffer anything for his sake. Paul said, don't be ashamed for my suffering. This is for his glory. We suffer differently as recipients of God's grace. And so we see God's grace unites us. It changes us. It motivates us. It's everything to us in the church. And it, it's a mystery, but it's, it's something extremely special. And this morning we get to celebrate it through the Lord's Supper. Now I want to take just a minute to explain how we do the Lord's Supper here at Cell Street. Because of our culture, there's a lot of different understandings of, of the Lord's Supper. Who can take it, how we take it, what it means when we do take it. So we'll start with the who can take the Lord's Supper this morning. It's anyone who is a Christian, right? If you're a born-again, spirit-filled believer in Christ Jesus, you don't have to be a Baptist. You have to be a believer, So if you're here this morning and you're a believer, you can take the Lord's Supper. Also, the word is clear is that we're going to take some time to examine our hearts before we take it. So even if, if we are believers and there's something sinful in our heart, whether it be unforgiveness or something we're just struggling with that we can't shake loose of, we're going to take a few minutes and examine our hearts and say, is there anything in my heart that's separated me from God right now? And if there is, I would hope that we would confess that and be forgiven. If you're not at that point, then I would encourage you not to take the Lord's Supper. If you say, man, I, this sin's got a grip on me and I just can't shake it, I'm going to stand, off, stand out this time. That's fine. You can, you can sit out. That's what's best. I'll read some scripture here in a minute that will explain that to us. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you're just here to check out what Christianity is all about. Say, man, I just came to see what you guys believe. That's great. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you 
and remind you what we've already seen, that through Christ you have access to the throne. And that's where that grace comes from. There's no sin that you've committed that's so bad that you can't be forgiven. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. He loves you. If that's you this morning, I encourage you rather than come to the table than to run to Jesus and trust in Him. And if you have questions about what that looks like or you don't need anybody, remember we have access to Him through what Christ has done, but I would encourage you to put all of your faith in Christ and with confidence know that you've been forgiven. might say well what am I trusting in you're trusting in who Jesus was the Messiah the one and only son of God who lived a perfect sinless spotless life was crucified buried and rose on the third day whose death fully satisfied God's law which is something we can't do that's why we can't save ourselves I can't save you you can't save you but all the work that's necessary has been done for you it was done through his death, burial, and resurrection. The resurrecting power of Jesus Christ is how we know that we can be delivered from sin, not just forgiven, even as believers. That's how we know we can be forgiven this morning. If there is some sin in our heart that's separating us from God, it's to trust in his power and not our own to overcome it. read a little bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The church at Corinth, Paul also wrote some letters to, they had come to a place in the life of their church where they would were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It's almost just like another meal to them. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we're going to take just a moment. We're going to examine our own hearts. And then after that, I'll pray. But this is something that we shouldn't take lightly. We should not take some sort of sin in our heart that we've not been before the Lord with. And it's okay. Nobody's watching you to say, oh, Jeff didn't take the Lord's Supper. He must be living in sin. But it's, this is between us and the Lord. And so, let's pray. Examine our hearts and then we'll walk through the actual taking of the Lord's Supper. So let's just take a moment, examine our own hearts, and ask the Lord to show us anything that might just need to be repented of.
Father, you are all-knowing. You know our hearts better than we do. But you too are all-powerful, Lord, and you can set us free from bondage of sin the power of sin so Father I pray that you would help us examine our hearts this morning that we would come before you in a way that is right and pure because of what Christ has done in us that we would just worship you through this time that you would be honored and glorified Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that is bound in sin, just can't escape, Lord, that you would do what only you can and set them free, Father. May your spirit just give wisdom and grace in that. And Lord, we come with thankful hearts that we have received your grace as we remember how through the perfect body of Christ and the powerful blood of Christ, Lord, that you would be honored and that we would be reminded. We thank you for even the access we have to you this morning. We pray it all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. This morning our deacons are going to distribute the elements to you. If you're a regular here at Cell Street, you'll notice that it's a, a little different this morning. Instead of the prepackaged elements, we're going to try at least one week of kind of going back to the unleavened bread and the grape juice. And so they're stacked on top of each other. You can just pull the juice on top of the bread and be ready to take them in a few minutes. These elements are not arbitrary by any means. I was having a conversation with one of my kiddos last night as my wife was preparing the bread and why, why is it bread and wine that we take? I was so excited to have that conversation because it's meaningful. The bread is unleavened bread. Leaven was a picture of influence. If you put a little leaven in a big lump of dough, the whole lump would be leaven. A little bit would influence a whole lot, and so it is with sin. But the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, was without sin. It was unleavened. And so this bread is a picture, a reminder of that. A reminder that even our own bodies are not without sin, without leaven. But His was, and without that we're hopeless. But in Him we have life, and life everlasting. Part of our conversation yesterday was why grape juice? The Bible speaks about the wine press and this great press that would come down together under great force and would squeeze the juice from those grapes 
and how the crucifixion of our Savior was very similar to that and how with great distress his body was crushed upon the tree and the blood flowed from him and that blood satisfied the law of God so that our sins could be forgiven and so that's what this picture is a reminder of the sinless spotless life-giving blood of our Savior shed on the cross at Calvary and also a reminder that our blood is not fit for that we take the Lord's Supper because it was instituted by our Savior in Matthew chapter 26 Jesus and his disciples were eating it says Jesus took the bread and after blessing it he broke it Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Listen to what he says in verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This Lord's Supper doesn't just look back to the cross. It looks forward to the table. I will not drink again of this fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's hope. There's hope in these elements. They're not just a reminder of what has been done. They're a reminder of what is to come. And one day, the people of God will gather around the table with Him and have it one last time. There's hope in that. That day's coming. And we get to celebrate this morning. Praise the Lord. So as we take these, let's be reminded of that. Jesus took the bread and after blessing, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. Let's take it. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take it. Father, you are so good, and we are so thankful. As we sing, may you inhabit our praise as we rejoice in our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.